Welcome to the Let's Talk About Church Safety and Security podcast, where we discuss the issues churches face protecting their flock while maintaining a Christ-centered focus with your host, Paul Buckner. You know, I, I want to give you encouragement. It's nothing you haven't thought of, but <clears throat> every time there's a tragedy, um, it gets people to stop and take notice the shooting in Charlotte, the shooting at White Settlement, the shooting in Sutherland Springs. And I would have people come up to me that had laughed at me the year before. And and a lot of times, especially early in church safety, we faced a lot of ridicule. People are like, oh, that's ridiculous. You guys are just you guys are just playing cowboy out here. You just don't want to be in the service. I've heard it all. Well, nothing's going to happen, Paul. Well, that's why we pray. And there's a, a verse that I love that... Uh, um, uh, unless God watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. Well, yes, but there are still watchmen and, and we're still called. The, yeah. Yes. We're still there. And, you know, like Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah. You know, we prayed, we prayed, to, we prayed to our God and posted a guard. Amen. And so Nehemiah the, also was rebuilding the wall and Nehemiah um, said, trial in one hand and a sword in the other. Amen. Nehemiah, yeah. Nehemiah, my first favorite verse is Nehemiah 4.14 now. Mm. It says, I looked among the people and the nobles and I told them, do not fear them. Amen. Trust in the Lord your God who is awesome. And defend yeah. your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. Amen. You know, I, I have that now laser engraved in the side of a pistol praise god that's because that's it yeah that's a verse that doesn't get a lot of airtime because a lot of people nehemiah 4 9 but that that doesn't get a lot of airtime and i'm really going to be i'm going to i'm going to ruminate and chew the cut over that verse and really process that well the, well I, to, to me it's like trust in the lord your god who is awesome we need to recognize that awesomeness mm. A whole lot more. And, and I've gotten to where when I start a prayer, I let God know that I know he's awesome. That oh, word yeah. awesome. You know, when I pray to God, I say, Lord, who is awesome. Amen. Thank you, God, for, for your, your, your majesty, your power, your grace and who you are. And you're, you're our creator. Uh, and we don't, God doesn't need to know he's awesome. Or he doesn't yeah. need us to tell him he's awesome. Yeah. We need to talk to God and let him, that let ourselves know that he's awesome and remind ourselves. And so Nehemiah 4.14, trust in the Lord your God who is awesome Amen. and defend your, your I love it. sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes, you know. Mm. See, this is, as a friend of mine says, that'll preach. Um, e every time there's a tragedy, God uses this. And I remember specifically after Sutherland Springs, after White Settlement, after Charlotte, I remember people coming up to me and saying, you know, and it was different people each time saying, I never thought what you guys did was important until. And um, and I, I went for 25 years to a church that ended up between two uh, rental neighborhoods that, that became really badly drug infested, meth, meth infested neighborhoods. 
and God really gave me a baptism of fire that blessed my chaplain ministry. And a lot of cops would pull into the parking lot and we would visit about God and the thing that they saw that was terrible. We might joke a little bit. They got to where they'd come in and eat meals with us and they'd have coffee with us. That baptism of fire, people were arrested on campus. We saw violence. We saw um, burglaries. We saw medical issues. We saw uh, uh, we had a light fixture catch on fire. Most of the things that churches will never see, we saw. And I realized that I was having my Esther moment, or my uh, yeah, my Esther moment. That that for such a time as this, God had put me where I was. And one of the things that that I love is. Um, People are realizing it's time to stand up for our families and be there and lovingly to protect. We don't do it because we hate, like you said earlier, we do it because we love and we welcome people in. And now hundreds and hundreds of churches are really starting to take safety seriously. And I, I love it where now entire denominations, which I'm a non-denominational kind of guy, I go to one church and we're responsible for us. But now there are there are pastors that are like, I won't I won't pastor a church that doesn't have a functional safety team and churches are starting to take budgets seriously and and to make budgets for their team. We're seeing a complete change of focus. And what I love is in conversations like this, that people hear that you're not Rambo. And I'm certainly not Rambo. And we may train and hone and continue to to train. Um, and, and as sheepdogs, we have teeth and we, we have a wary eye and we look and we listen for the wolf, but we're not walking around biting sheep. And I, I love that heart because I remember a guy bragging to me that they had run off a homeless guy from his church and everything that I heard about the guy coming into his church sounded to me like all he wanted was Jesus. And I, I said, you know, what really concerns me is I understand that he stank. And I understand that he didn't dress like everyone else. He was disheveled. He was ill-kept. He wasn't, he hadn't bathed. I get it. I get that he may even have reeked of alcohol, but I'm really reminded and it's really convicting for me that Jesus would have walked up to that man and loved him. How many times in scripture does it say Jesus looked at name of person and loved them? And you think about that. That's who we're supposed to be. A, a friend of mine talks about a, his little child was freaking out in the middle of the night. And you're, you're a word picture guy. You'll love this. And comes to mommy and daddy and says, um, can I sleep with you? I'm scared there's a monster under my bed. And he's like, he's like, son, go back and lay down, pray. And, and Jesus is with you. And he goes, I know Jesus is with me, but right now I need Jesus with skin on. And um <laughs> There, at some point, my friend, we all need Jesus with skin on. We need to talk to somebody. We need we need hope. And when that homeless person comes into the church, um, we had a couple years ago at a church I did security for that they came in. They didn't bathe. And there was no, they didn't take care of themselves at all. And if you got within six to eight foot of them, you couldn't breathe. And we, we loved them through it. There were people that didn't want them there. We loved them through it anyway. They came to Christ. The women started to love on his wife and be like, oh, honey, here's some personal grooming things you can do. And then pretty soon she was dressing as in clean clothes, same clothes, clean clothes. She was grooming herself because they weren't bathing at all. And I don't think they knew what toilet paper was. And we'll just leave that alone. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then she got him doing it. And 
it isn't the outside packaging. They 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 were definitely DLRs. They or just DLRs. They they uh, you know just didn't look right. But they needed Jesus just like everyone else. And I'm I'm really convicted of and reminded of. And I feel like one of the biggest things God has me out here saying is, don't forget that these people need Jesus. Now. They had their own security person or persons. Um, we were very careful. We watched over things. We made sure because sometimes those very things I just described are signs of somebody who's about to do something bad. That's totally possible. But how we interact with them can actually help determine the outcome. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons God has me in in the church safety space. So, yeah, absolutely. We we have to be first just because somebody is homeless and hasn't bathed and stuff doesn't make them any less valuable mm. to God. Amen. Uh, and if we think we're better, oh, we're at church every Sunday. And so therefore we're God's people. Understand that God created them just mm. as well as yourself. Amen. And they need God just as well as you. Amen. And, you know, when I went to Alaska, I really had to work my mind around. So she, the their missionary, gave me a little heads up. Before you go to Alaska, you need to understand uh, a lot about what has happened in Alaska and a lot about the culture. The culture is very high alcoholism. Uh, because they've got a 90% incest rate. Ouch. And now I am angry. Yeah. Uh, because that's something that I deplore. That's, that's something that I just can't even imagine. And I'm, and my mind goes, well, they ought to be executed, <laughs> you know? And and she's like, okay, so this is your problem, and you need to work this out before you come here. Mm. This was done to them, and they've done it to their children, mm. and it's been passed down. And there's a PBS documentary about it. Uh, the Catholic Church, I'm not ragging on the Catholic Church, by the way. Uh, I don't want this to be about that. The Catholic right. Church in the late 50s and early 60s sent a Catholic priest and a deacon to uh, convert the Native Alaskans to Catholicism. And the PBS documentary documents that the priest liked little girls and the deacon liked little boys. Oh, dear. And so they were sending them up there to do catechism with the children and they would lock the doors and they would. So this created a and, and right away what happened is the kids would come home and say the Catholic priest did this. And the mommies and daddies said, no, he's a man of God. He wouldn't do that. And so they would go out in the tundra and they would hide when they were supposed to be going to Catholicism or to uh, catechism. And then the priest would come by and say, your child didn't show up. And so the parents would take them physically and 
take them to catechism and force their children to go. And it's all come out now. And it mm. created a, a culture of doing this. And mm. it was passed down. And so what has happened now that they know that it is wrong, it has convicted them. And so they drink to alleviate what they've done. And then when that doesn't help, they get on a snowmobile and run across a frozen lake until the ice gets so thin that the snowmobile caves in and they don't find them until the next spring's fall. Wow. And she said, these people don't need your condemnation. These people need to know that God will accept them, that God still loves them to break the cycle and move forward. Mm-hmm. And every fiber of my being and God said, don't judge them. Amen. Wow. And you're going to have to get over this to be able to speak to them. And to be you definitely able, didn't go in your own strength, did you? There was a lot of God going with you. Oh man, God has hammered. I God has hammered on me, making me into what He wanted me to be for a long time. Um, and I, I guess we talked about this. My year of visiting Job, uh, mm-hmm. and some of what that entailed. So uh, I had a 1993 one day before my. 31st birthday, a drunk driver ran across and hit my parents head on. They were on a motorcycle and killed them both. And at their funeral, we found out the day of their funeral, we found out my mother, uh, my wife, well, my wife was pregnant Mm. with what would be our third child. At their funeral, we found out my wife was pregnant with what would be our third child and gave us something to hang on to during a closed coffin funeral for two of my parents. About two and a half months later, an arsonist burned their house to the ground with all my memories in it and no insurance. And then... A couple of weeks after that, I found out that our baby's heartbeat stopped in the second trimester. And my wife had to carry that child for two more weeks to reabsorb into her body before they would remove it. And after they did that, I lost my job. We were sitting at my house with two young, young daughters at the time. No money to go anywhere, do anything, because I was unemployed. With nothing to do but to to soak in all of everything that had happened within just a few months' time. And there was a knock at the door. And at the time, we were part of a shepherding group, is what we called it. It's a smaller group within a large church. Okay. The church had asked my wife and I, since we had just been married a few years, to be part of a stabilization on a singles shepherding group. 
because we still had friends in the singles group and and they gave us a couple that were in their 60s to give us some wisdom and some stabilization in the group and stuff and when i opened up the door it was pat and harvey pearson at the door the older couple followed by 18 singles that walked in with vhs videos at the time a stack of pizzas and board games and they walked in and they said um get your best clothes on there's five-star french restaurant reservations for you and your wife and there's a credit card already there and your bill's been paid mm. and we have 20 babysitters for your children <laughs> We're going to play games and Walt Disney movies and eat pizza and stuff. So wow. your kids are taken care of. And that point, I knew that I turned the corner. That being said, years later, my son that was born after that point was in Boy Scouts. And he was 11 years old. And we were staying on a property for our first camp out as Boy Scouts. And we're sitting around with the other scout leaders and I'm chaplain in the Boy Scouts. And we're poking at a fire and we're talking and stuff. And I talked about the fact that somebody had burned my parents. I talked about this whole story of my Job moment when I was studying in Job because I felt like him. Mm. I'm sitting around poking at a fire and telling this story to, and one of the other scoutmasters, one of the other assistant scoutmasters said, I need to talk to you over here. And I walked off to the side with him. He said, do you know whose property you're on? I said, yeah, it's, it's Paul's property. He said, but do you know who Paul is? I said, well, you know, Paul Zimmerman, he's, you know, his son is in the troop, and he said, but do you know that Paul is the man that burned your mom and dad's house down? Oh, wow. I intentionally didn't know who did it because I didn't know, I didn't want to know what my reaction would be. No, no, I totally get that. And now God said, what are you going to do about it, chaplain? Mm. Talk about what the rubber meeting the road. What are you going to do about it? I'm like, God, I want to be mad. <laughs> I want to be angry. But I've gotten to know Paul. Wow. And, and his daughter and his wife. I've gotten to know them. And he's trying to be a productive part of my community. And God says, what are you going to do, chaplain? Mm. You have your whole Boy Scout troop out here. What are you going to do? Okay, God, I get the message. I get it. Wow. You're not even going to allow me to be angry at Paul. <laughs> I have to forgive Paul. So God has put some really hard lessons. No doubt. In front of an old redneck. 
and I I stayed friends with Paul and 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 I forgave Paul. Wow. With man, this was is impossible, but with God, all things. Are oh, possible. I wanted to be so angry. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea the man's property that I'm camping on with our kids wow. was the one that probably 13 years earlier had burned down my parents' house. He was part of the volunteer fire department and he burned down 11 structures in our area so he could set them on fire and he could be the first man on the job to say, look how great I am. I'm the first guy that responded as the house burned down. Mm. And he got that attaboy sensation for being the fire department that put out the fire and he had spent 11 years in prison. Wow. Well, my wife says it wasn't quite 11 years, but he had spent time in prison for, yeah. for that. You know, I think we forget sometimes because as people, we forget how gritty and real the word of God is. And so imagine you're in a church in the first century and this guy named Saul is going door to door and dragging your friends and relatives out, having them beaten or having them imprisoned or straight up having them killed. And then God turned. Yeah. And God turns to you and says, Hey, I knocked, I knocked Saul off his high horse out there on the road and, and he can't see anything. He's literally been completely humbled and he's ready for me. So you, Paul Buckner, you, Stephen Williford, you're going to go talk to this guy that still has the authority to have you beaten, jailed, or murdered. It's time he's blind. It's time to have him beaten, jailed, and murdered. Yeah. Well, and, and, and as as flawed, I, I like to joke and say the unsaved part of Paul Buckner is like, oh, okay. And and but but God used, and it's so easy for us to sugarcoat that and go, oh, well, of course that's in scripture. These people all jumped right on board. One dude went to him. One guy had the intestinal fortitude to go visit with him and and followed God's instruction. Saul is healed. He becomes Paul. He writes the majority of the New Testament. He ministered all the way from Israel to Spain and ultimately gave his life for Christ. And it's so easy for us to go because because I, I have struggled with forgiveness with close family members. I've struggled with forgiveness with people that have deeply wronged me. And I'm coming to a place where something bad will happen. I am not perfect. Um, but I'm coming to this place where somebody wronged me pretty profoundly recently. And I caught it. It was like somebody throwing a ball at me. I caught it and I thought about it. Yeah. And I went, I'm just going to choose to forgive. And I let it go. And you had that journey that a lot of times I think as Christians, if we actually really looked at the people in the word of God and went, Wow, Paul ministered to people in churches that he had probably put their family members in prison. You talk about a tough crowd to preach to. Yeah. That's a tough crowd. Well, the reason I tell that story is because I truly believe that God put me on that path to understand mm. what it was going to take to reach the people in Alaska. Amen. You know, God put me on that path to and and convicts me daily. And and had I met him without getting to know him, 
I would have been angry. And I wanted to be angry when I did meet him. When I did find out, I wanted to be angry. But I had already met him, and God orchestrated that and put that into action before I made that connection. And God let me know at a campfire with Boy Scouts sitting around, this is the man you were talking about. <laughs> so was the man listening to the story at the time? No, he was not at the campsite. Okay, okay. He was not at the campsite. Wow. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so... Yeah. And see, that's something... It, unusual and amazing at the same time too hmm. is that we were sitting around a campfire on this man's property and he hmm. wasn't present when i was speaking interesting because he obviously liked fire i'm not trying to be funny i mean it's obviously <laughs> psychologically obvious psychologically obvious that from a psychological standpoint that he liked fire i'm not trying to be cute so he was missing out on one of his favorite things hmm. no. Wow. So had he given his life to Christ while he was in prison or, or what, what was his journey? I don't know exactly whether he has given his life to Christ other than mm. the fact that he's trying to be a product, productive part of the community and do what he can for his community, i.e. he was one of our assistant scoutmasters and, wow. and things like that. Um, but and I have kind of lost contact with him, uh, you know, uh, but I, I can't. Testimony. When God, when God brings him around, I just, I have this feeling that he's going to accept Christ and what a testimony. Cause I can see the two of you talking to a crowd. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but what a powerful testimony would that be for the two of you to talk about that kind of forgiveness, you know? Cause that's convicting. That's convicting to me over here going, wow. Cause I've carried grudges, terrible grudges that I, that I think I'm truly free from for people that did a whole lot less than burn my parents' house down. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, again, uh, it's God's glory. I'm a flawed man altogether. And, and if it had not been for his orchestrating that to happen, I would have likely, punch a guy in the face <laughs> at least once <laughs> yeah uh, well, and then you got this whole traumatized group of boy scouts going our chaplain beat this man up <laughs> I, I i'm a very flawed human being and i remember one night as a chaplain i was writing and god god puts me where he wants me and i pray that he does and you talk about, you were talking about like, like going up to, and I want to circle back to that in a minute, but you were talking about going up into Alaska and talking to people that there was a generational sin. Um, I was with a department in a little town, a flooded rip through the town was torn in half. It was almost impossible to cross over the stream side to side to go across the town. And there's no power on half of the town. So that sets the stage. It's late at night. They get a call that, that there's a woman screaming for help. And so we circle around over the, you know, to get around this raging torrent and we come up to this house, there's no power. This woman is screaming for help and, or was screaming for help. She had stopped. And as a chaplain, I'm a, I'm a private citizen. And so I step out of the vehicle with permission. I walk up onto the lawn with permission. The officer is getting ready to knock on the door. The doors open. 
he shines his flashlight in and I see him turn around and look at me and he goes, and in my state, it's, it's actually an infraction of the law, not to back an officer that needs it. Not that it would ever go to court. And I, and he knows me, I'm crazy. I'll charge right in behind him. <laughs> and we step into this house and domestic abuse for me is one of the most terrible things anyone can do to anyone. And there's a woman on the floor in, in a, in a puddle of her own blood, tears, and urine. And she had been um, basically falsely imprisoned by her boyfriend. Um, they were both about 50 years old for the weekend, and he used her for a punching bag. And for me, the unsaved part of Paul Buckner, because I, I have witnessed domestic abuse. I have, I have seen what it does to people very close to me. And I, I wanted to beat this man to pudding. That was my, you know, not saved part of Paul instinct. And this guy has drunk himself into a stupor and passed out. And he, he had beaten her until his own hand had swollen like an MMA glove. And he had thrown boiling water on her back. She had second and third degree burns. He almost killed her at one point choking her. And so the, the Old Testament vengeance is mine, saith Paul part of me, wanted to go. And I, the officer looked at me and you want to talk about that. Hey, chaplain, how are you going to conduct yourself moment? He looked at me and I could tell that half of him was like, help me not hurt this guy. Cause he's a man just like anyone else. And he's a believer. And the other half of him was like, help me kill this guy. And we <laughs> both were experiencing this moment. And I tapped my chest where his badge would be. And I said, you have to honor it. I didn't want him to honor it. I wanted to hold the guy down for him. Yeah, and yeah exactly. We got the guy in cuffs and we put him in the cruiser and we locked him in the cruiser, which was the best thing we could have done because every bystander, police officer, first responder that showed up was like, where's this dude at? Because there's something in a man, in a good man that went, you did this to her. You just forfeited the right to breathe. And he went to federal prison, blah, blah, blah. But it was one of those nights that, I was very much com confronted with my own humanity and the officer thanked me later. He's like, I'm not sure how I was going to react in that moment, but you being there really helped me. And, and it definitely built a bond between him and I, he's my brother. And, but it was one of those moments that we, we, we get presented in life with opportunities to either be Christ like now the bad guy needed to go to jail. The bad guy needed to go to prison. That happened. But there's a very strong temptation to take that into our own hands sometimes. And uh, he was not a clear threat to either one of us. But I've had that moment. And uh, I had another moment with a police department. And I'll, I'll make this really, really quick where a guy had broken the hand of one of the officers that I would that I love. He's my brother. And I would die for him. And after, as I'm treating his injuries and I had fought to protect him, there was a bunch of cops involved. It took three cops in the chaplain and two tasers to get this guy in handcuffs. It was wild. And it taught me so much, Stephen. It taught me so much about myself, about life, about what cops go through. And it blew my ministry wide open because guys who had never, they'd never had a use for the chaplain went, you're my brother and I need to talk to you very much. And that's kind of where I'm segueing back up to these guys in Alaska. It's a warrior culture. And so afterwards I learned an awful lot about Paul Buckner because I'm treating my friend's injuries. The ambulance is screaming in backups coming from everywhere. My adrenaline's through the roof. And this guy is spitting blood because he got punched in the mouth. 
and he's spitting blood and he's like, Oh, I hurt that pig. I'm blankety blank glad I hurt that pig. And I stopped and I, I remember my chin hitting my chest and I literally thought I'm going to kill him. And I had always thought I was a fairly self-controlled guy. And I, I'm the chaplain. I turned around and I took one step and all these things occurred to me like a computer readout occurred to me. Um, that's a felony or series of felonies, what you're thinking about doing, because I was going to kick him in the face. And I was, I was ready to go to war. I'm like, oh, oh, you're glad you hurt my friend. And all of a sudden I realized this is what cops feel like. This is what cops go through. The, the handcuffs go on, the cops come off. You can't hurt this guy, even though he's spitting vitriol and blood and, and he's literally verbally spitting bile and he was offensive. Let me tell you, he was deeply offensive with the things he was saying. And then he vowed to kill all of us. And I stopped and I had this aha moment and I went, Whoa, th this is what this feels like. And I, I'm really glad I didn't do anything bad because there's eight witnesses and there's security cameras and there's, there's body cameras and there's dash cameras. This is what cops go through when somebody hurts when somebody hurts an innocent person, this is what cops go through when somebody hurts their brother or sister. That's a cop. And I had this amazing moment that, that forever changed me. But so it's really funny when I'm talking to somebody and they're like, Oh, I mean, you're the chaplain. You don't, you don't ever swear. Or, oh, you're the chaplain. You, you, you've got all this stuff figured out. I'm like, no. So I want to go back. I want to go back to Alaska. And I would love for you to talk about, God had brought you through all these things, molding you and shaping you and, and sharpening you into the man that you are and that you're becoming. I want to, I want you to talk more about going into that environment and ministering to those men. I was, uh, so when I got up there in the Arctic circle and, uh, you know, the Arctic circle was a bucket list for me. I would, hmm. I Always would have loved to have done something like this in my former life, if you will. Mm -hmm. I never did see me being able to afford it, uh, hmm. being able to do something like this. Uh, and so I was in, invited up there for a caribou hunt, ah. which uh, I did not get any caribou. Uh, it was unseasonably warm, and they weren't migrating uh, at the time. So, I, I but it wasn't necessarily about getting a caribou, but at like, you know, and I asked them as I was headed up to the Arctic Circle, would I get a chance to see the Northern Lights? Ah, and they said about a ninety percent chance you will see the Northern Lights. Uh, another bucket list and yes i got to see the northern lights i went outside my uh shelter to relieve myself in the middle of the night and i'm out there and wow lord mm. how awesome is this in the middle of nowhere we were in the middle of 48.8 million acres of native alaskan property wow. surrounded by three times that much of national forest mm. so i'm out there watching the northern lights and stuff and i was asked into a alaskan mucky and uh 
I was told by their missionary that no white man gets to go into a Alaskan mucky unless you are really privileged. And no. I said, I said, what is an Alaskan mucky? Well, every Native American culture has a sweat lodge in it. Okay. For their religious experiences. And so they've got a big wood. Now it's like 12 degrees outside. Mm. And uh, a flowing stream out beside. And they've got a constructed a, a mucky, which is a sweat lodge, which has a wood burning stove in it. Hmm. And they've taken the reflective. Uh, uh, insulation mm -hmm. and put it all around the room so it reflects back you know and wood burning stove and they've got uh, chicken wire with rocks all over the chicken wire covering the wood burning stove and they're feeding it with with wood constantly and they've got a 55 gallon barrel setting off to the side full of water Okay. And a stick with a five pound Folgers coffee can, one old metal five pound coffee can, uh, you know, steel coffee cans on it, and holes mm. poked all in the bottom of the coffee can, and, okay. and tied to a stick. And they keep dipping out of that 55 gallon barrel of water and pouring it over those rocks that are on this wood burning okay. stove which just it's 140 degrees in here and they keep sending the kids out to get more water and stuff out of the stream and bring it in there and, and keep the barrel full so we stripped down to our underwear they when you walk into the mucky they had an outer room that you stripped down and left your clothes in the outer room and you're in your underwear in the mucky and if that isn't humiliating enough for an old fat guy like me setting amongst the tribe tribal men all sitting in their underwear with the boys all around the room and everybody in this uh sweat lodge hmm. you know? and they told of their um their religious beliefs and they have what was, I guess, considered their uh, medicine man or their religious man from the very far past in Alaska where they weren't confronted with any kind of um, uh, modern anything, you know. And apparently, and I heard all this religious belief and stuff from them, apparently their religious man was talked to by a bird okay into him and the bird said that god wanted to get to know them mm. or they wanted that god wanted him to know that him yeah and so this bird came to their religious man and said someday a a pale man was going to come up the river in Alaska in a boat that didn't need oars. Oh, wow. To come, to come up the river. And then in a black box, 
they would have God in the black box. So when they were first met with the rest of the world, you might say, yeah, it was a sailing ship that sailed upstream. And when the native Alaskans came on board, they had the Bible in a black box. I was waiting. Wow. And uh, so they started talking to the native Alaskans about God and stuff. And that was the first um, introduction to the outside world that these native Alaskans got. Mm. You know, if God can speak to man through an ass, you know, a, mm-hmm. a donkey, mm-hmm. then God can certainly speak to native Alaskans through a bird. Well, to this day, they're all over the Middle East, there are there are men that were raised under Islam that are having dreams where they see Jesus and he appears to them and says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and then tells them to follow him. And there are men that were raised to hate anyone who does not believe their way. And they're seeing, um, there's a great book called Son of Hamas. There's another one called Once a PLO Sniper. There's several amazing books where men were raised to hate uh, Israelis and they were raised to hate any kind of European. And they are having visions and they're having these powerful conversions to Christ. So I have no doubt that God spoke to this man. Um, and uh, I mean, he used a burning bush. He used a burning bush with Moses and got his attention. Well, and and so I heard their religious stories. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they asked me about mine. And I talked about what happened in Sutherland Springs and how God orchestrated everything and God is in control. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you've not heard my full story, uh, then go find it. Because uh, I truly believe it was... Uh, divinely orchestrated. And again, it is not my story, but it's God's indeed. And I told that story to Native Alaskans. Mm. Uh, sitting there in my underwear. And, and after you're done, it's, it's, it's really uh, quite an experience because after you're done, they send the kids out and they get a five-gallon bucket of water from the, the stream. And like I say, it's 12 degrees outside. And they bring it in. And after you're done, you stand up, you take your underwear off, and you sponge bath in front of the tribe and everybody, you know, and then when you're done, you pick this bucket up and you dump it over to rinse all the rest of the, you know, off of you in a room of 140 degrees. It's like, you know, and, and, and then you walk into the other room and dry off and put your clothes on and walk out of the, the mucky. But uh, um, what a humbling, strange uh, and honoring um experience it was uh and these these folks had been you'd mentioned they had a a a woman that god had called there to be a missionary and they're a very patriarchal society so she was struggling to get inroads what what fruit have you seen come from that conversation where god took you already i i'm going to tell you before this happened there is an awakening Mm. in alaska 
and uh, it, it now they're highly into shamanism and stuff, but the Christian element is beginning to spread from Alaska. Praise God. And through Alaska, and the revival may be coming from Alaska, mm. from people that, that were raised in something very different. And Alaska, the, the fields are white for the harvest. Mm. It's, it's, it's time. It's Alaskan's time. And and it's happening, and it, it it's amazing. Um, I I hope that the seeds that I planted will sprout. Amen. But seeds have already started sprouting. They have um, uh, missions that have Alaskan uh, Native Alaskan camps for youth that go up there and spend time up in the Arctic Circle and. And some of those villages up in the Arctic Circle, they don't have any water, any running water. They don't have any sewage. Everything uh, gets dumped from what they call honey pots into a, I guess, a sewage because everything freezes. Everything freezes there. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's cold. It's harsh. It's it's amazing that people can live in, a, in an environment like that. Uh when I was up there, the Alaskan missionary that is the one uh, uh, Native Alaskan that is actually, he is a missionary there. He brings up Google Earth on his, uh, on his satellite phone. And he said, did you know that all the bear dens are marked off on Google Earth. I said, really? The bear dens? Why would the bear dens be marked off on Google Earth? So you he stay said, away from them? <laughs> no, no. He says, because if you're out here hunting and a blizzard happens and you're caught, the bear dens will be refuge. They will be clean. There oh. will be no bear scat in them nor fur or anything it will be a clean place that you can go and ride the storm out and the bears don't hibernate until it gets later in the winter and oh. you wouldn't be out there and about later in the winter so it is a place that if you get caught out and a storm happens you can go find a bear den and spend a night in a bear den that was not where I would have thought that would have gone. That's really neat. I, I was I was shocked. I was blown away. I was you know, but these people have figured out how to li live in the harshest of very much uh, so. environments. You know, mm. all the so, way even to using that uh, today's technology to do it. You know, nice. and, and which you don't speak unless you're to someone in the outside world, unless you're on a satellite phone. Mm. There's no phone towers out there. Yeah, exactly. So we have actually covered everything that I, almost everything that I was originally thinking of and more, but I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask and then let you answer them as you, as you wanted to. Um, so one of the things, cause I think a lot of times in, in interviews um, we focus on the person who did the deed. 
um, what was this journey like for your family? Because you're, you're obviously this massively impacted your wife. It massively impacted your your children and your and their spouses and what have you. Um, because I, I know from talking to Frank Pomeroy and talking to other people around certain tragic events, you have things that polarize people in different directions. Frank mentioned people that that had been attached to the church or close to the church that had left at one point. I guess my question is anything that comes to mind, because for the person that still thinks they kind of want this to happen, what did your family go through alongside you early on? So um, I guess how it's affected my family. And I do think that um, there's a lot of PTSD. Um, my, my daughters were outside the church after I had chased the guy down the road. Um, my wife came and back to my house. She was down the road. She wasn't at the house when it happened. And, and my daughter was at the house and my wife right away did not want to leave my daughter alone. Mm-hmm. And so they came back to my house and, and then they went to the church, uh, to the neighbor's house right across from the church. And they brought out a, a little girl that was probably six years old at the time that her mother had died. Her pregnant mother had died covering her body after two of her siblings were murdered in front of her. Mm. So her mother saved her life, and they brought out this precious little girl dressed in her Sunday clothes with blood and pieces of her mother on her Mm. and brought brought her out and asked my daughters to comfort her. While they went back, well, while the EMS and EMTs went back in to save whoever they could, and so my daughter said, "You know, Dad, she she would have been so pretty in her in her Sunday dress, but she was covered in blood and pieces of her mother," is what my daughter said. Mm-hmm. And they they brought this little girl to me and said, please keep her awake. She had a bruise on her forehead. Uh. And they were afraid that she might be, she might have a concussion. Please keep her awake. Mm. And so my daughter asked her, what, um, what's your favorite movie? And she said, Moana. And so my daughter started singing songs from that Disney movie with her. And then when she would trail off and start talking about the horror of what had just taken place, my daughter said, do you like puppies? She said, I have a puppy. And the little girl said, I I like kittens. I have kittens at home. And so my daughter started talking to her about her kittens. And my daughter was sobbing, telling me this story. And I said, baby, you're my hero. Mm-hmm. And she said, dad, I didn't do anything you couldn't have done. And I said, oh, no, baby. I said, I can chase the bad guys down the road. That's what God wanted of me. 
but I couldn't have comforted that little girl. I don't even know who Moana is. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a Mulan Disney Disney character. Yes. It's an old Chinese old Chinese legend. No, 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 no. It's the uh, uh, I guess the Hawaiian girl or, or the oh, Chinese I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, okay, totally different movie. I've never even seen it, but I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So I didn't even know who that was at the time. You know, I couldn't have comforted Evelyn. I couldn't have done what she did. I said, God chose you, and and Rachel was just sobbing and in tears at that moment because of what she had gone through. Uh, and considering what my wife had gone through, she gets a call. She's working on my daughter's house, and she gets a call, where are you at? Well, I'm at Rachel's house working on the house. What's going on? I said, there's someone shooting up the church. And I and I said, and she said, don't go over there. And I hung up on her. And then she comes back to find out that I had a shootout with a guy. I got in a truck and ran down the road. She had no idea whether I was wounded, <clears throat> whether I was okay. She had no clue mm -hmm. what condition her husband was in or where I was even. Probably for some time. Uh, for too long, enough police were around there. They started talking about a crash scene down the road. Mm. And they were going to the crash scene. She didn't know at that point whether it was the vehicle that I was in that crashed. Copy that. And so she loaded up with a neighbor and came down to the crash scene as close as they would let her get. And it wasn't until she saw me walking around down there that she knew that I was okay. Mm. And I didn't have my telephone to be able to call her right away. So, so right. the impact of all of that, I had to flag a police officer down and say, can I call my wife? He said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And he kept walking. I said, <laughs> I said, no, can I use your phone? And he turns and looks at me and said, what, you don't have a phone? Didn't I have looked time. down to my bare feet. I said, I don't have shoes on. A phone wasn't my priorities. Yeah. yeah. And so he allowed me to use his phone, and they wouldn't allow me to go back to talk to my wife. Oh, heartbreaking. Yes, understood. And they wouldn't allow her to come down to the crash scene either. And so I called her on the phone, and she answered, and I said, I said, I'm okay. And she said, really? And I said, I think I just killed a man. Of course. But physically, I'm okay. And so the emotion that was going through her with the not knowing has followed her into today's life also. Yes. And seeing the things that she saw. And I told my daughter, God spared me what you saw. And I can chase the bad guy down the road, but the things that you guys saw 
and hearing the helicopters coming in and seeing them load a young lady, a young girl into an ambulance, and then they realized she had passed and unloading her because they needed the ambulance space for someone that survived. Yes. Uh, it's something that I don't carry. I didn't see those things. Yeah. And then the guilt of thinking I've got PTSD and yet I didn't get shocked. This is something else that people need to know. You have the right to have your emotions, even if you weren't in the church right. or whatever situation it is. If you've been through this, these are your feelings. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and if you need to get counseling for that, it's okay. You didn't lose a family member. You weren't in there. But it's okay to have these feelings. Amen. And it's okay to get counseling for them, too. So there's a lot to unpackage with going forward with my family. A lot of that. And then a lot of, you know, it, it's funny because my kids growing up, we would go into a Home Depot in San Antonio. And someone would step up and know me, you know, and they, they, before they used to say, dad, do you know everybody? <laughs> you know, you know it, it's something funny that wherever I went one time, and this was well before the shooting, uh, my wife and I had gone to St. Louis, Missouri to one of her friend's weddings. And so we were flying and, and we were in Chicago, uh, O'Hara Airport for a connecting flight to get to St. Louis, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. San Antonio, you can't go any yeah, you can't go anywhere from San Antonio for direct flight because San Antonio is just not a big airport and is landlocked, so uh, they don't have flights everywhere. So we went to O'Hara Airport where we had about an hour and a half um uh, delay for our connecting flight and I'm sitting there and a lady looked at me and said, I know you. No, ma'am, I'm I'm not from here. You really don't know me. Yes, I do. No, there is just no way you know who I am. You know, and she said, I met you in San Antonio and I'm like, oh my God, she knows me. It's <laughs> <laughs> like you know, and it it was just some meeting it's some somewhere and she got to she talked to me and she had recognized me years later and there so that was kind of my kids thought I knew everybody growing up and now when I go out with my kids and stuff into the public uh, people that I have never met in my life come up and recognize me and that's been a really strange so it wasn't too long ago we were out for dinner with my daughter, her husband, my grandbabies, and my wife, and we ate dinner, and we're ready to, to check out, and we call the waitress over, and she comes over, and I said, uh, I, need, I need the bill. And she said, someone in the restaurant paid your ticket. When they paid their own, they paid yours. 
And they said to talk, tell you, they know who you are. And they just want to remain anonymous. Mm. That's, that's one of the, tr it's a truly kind, subtle way to say thank you, you know, and you, you probably, and I'm, I'm, I'm making a guess, but you probably wonder sometimes when you see somebody recognize you, whether the way they recognize you is going to be positive or negative. You probably wonder sometimes what, what they are going to respond with. I, I fly uh, and teach churches to set up safety response teams all over. I've done six or seven different tours of Pennsylvania. Wow. And usually when I fly somewhere, I post that I'm going there and stuff. And uh, because I have a Facebook following and stuff, usually someone will say, oh, you're coming into my area. So I was flying into uh, Pittsburgh and uh, posted that. And I got contacted one time, said, oh, you're coming into Pittsburgh. We're from Pittsburgh. Uh, my brother was in, was murdered in the shooting. And we want to meet you. She says, my father and I and my sister all live in Pittsburgh. And we, we want to, close to Pittsburgh, and we want to meet you. Mm. Um. Now, I'm really having an emotional moment wondering how this meeting is going to go. Oh, yeah, the apprehension would be, uh, yeah. Because I have, uh, I was unable, to, they recognized me as the guy that stopped the shooter. But I was unable to stop him from murdering their loved one. Yeah. Uh, her brother and his wife had just retired from the Air Force, and it was their very first visit at First Baptist Church, oh. Sutherland Springs. Mm. And now I'm wondering what this meeting is about. Yeah. And how's it going to go? And I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry that I was unable to uh, stop him from killing yeah of your course. Brother, your brother your your son and we met at a restaurant uh, there in Pittsburgh and we cried together yeah wow that was the very first time that I met them. And I didn't know what I was expected or what to expect from this encounter. Of course. And uh, so I have gotten to speak at the, their church now. Wow. Uh, have eaten and broken bread with their family. And since then, the, the father has passed away. Uh, and uh, I still have contact with the the two sisters and uh, sometimes I don't know how this is going to go but I, I think we all walked away more blessed having met each other yeah 
This has been the Let's Talk About Church Safety and Security podcast. We hope this blessed you, and we encourage you to like and share this episode with your ministry team.